Over the past decade, at the urging of federal officials, and in some cases with considerable philanthropic support, most American states sought to overhaul how they evaluate their teachers. The conflict that ensued made one lesson quite clear. Change is hard. And with the federal government no longer applying pressure, most state policymakers are now racing as far away from the issue as possible. But are there other lessons we can draw from our national experiment with teacher evaluation reform? And what does the episode tell us about how best to create change in American education? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by Tom Kane, the Walter H. Gale Professor of Education at Harvard University and author of the new article, Develop and Validate, Then Scale, Lessons from the Gates Foundation's Effective Teaching Strategy, which is available now at educationnext.org. Tom, welcome back to the EdNext podcast. Thanks, Marty. So you argue that reformers should look back at recent efforts to reform teacher evaluation in the U.S. before they move on to the next big idea. And you admit that you feel that obligation a bit more keenly than most. Why? So, Marty, I spent uh, four years of my life uh, running something called the Measures of Effective Teaching Project. Um, it was funded by the Gates Foundation. In fact, I was on leave from Harvard uh, working at the Gates Foundation. And in that project, we recruited 3,000 teachers across uh, six different school districts to develop new approaches to teacher evaluation. The, the whole idea behind the project was that, you know, we've known for years that there are huge differences in student achievement gains for different teachers, but schools have lacked the tools to have any conversations about effective instruction. And seeing that, we thought, well, gosh, like shouldn't, can't research play a role in helping to develop and validate better tools for doing teacher evaluation? So we did that. At the same time that states were implementing Race to the Top and the Gates Foundation was also funding a number of districts to implement teacher evaluation um, reforms. But our project was trying to develop better measures. And so your research project was very much part of this broader effort and meant to inform how the broader effort to reform teacher evaluation would go. Yes, actually, we designed it from the beginning to try to report back um, quickly within this policy window. Because the foundation and the federal government were both pushing aggressively in this direction, you knew some right. lessons needed to be if, learned. If it took us, if we were just <laughs> releasing the results now, um, you know, it obviously would have been irrelevant. So we had committed to trying to get this done in, in a couple of years, and we succeeded in that. So let's look back now at this broader effort. What was the rationale for zeroing in on teacher evaluation in the first place? You spoke a minute ago that we've known for a long time that student achievement gains seem to depend heavily on who they're assigned to, even within the same school. Uh, but say more about why evaluation was the right place to, to go with that fact. So it's funny. It's, um, it's almost as if we have designed um, our teacher evaluation policies and the way school districts or schools are managed just the opposite from what you know the evidence would imply would be appropriate so um, so as I mentioned before there are huge differences in student achievement gains in different teachers classrooms and also that you know things like paper credentials um, 
whether you have a teaching certificate, uh, um, aren't very predictive of student achievement gains. Um, and yet, those are the only things that states and districts pay attention to now is paper credentials. And they completely ignore um, teacher performance on, on the job. In fact, it is so bad that there is no common vocabulary that teachers have or principals have for discussing um, instruction. And so we saw teacher evaluation or better tools for teacher evaluation as a way to sort of um, generate a cascade of other positive organizational changes in schools that, that are long overdue. Not just um, doing a better job assessing uh, early career uh, teachers, you know, as, as most people um, may, uh, may not realize, school districts don't need to change collective bargaining agreements in some cases uh, to make some fundamental changes. They just need to use that probationary period to make hard decisions. They don't uh, now. And so that's one reason why teacher evaluation uh, tools could be better to, to help principals make better decisions during that probationary period. But a second is to just you know, provide a common vocabulary and uh, for teachers and principals to talk about, you know, effective instruction and actually give principals um, a, a lever for, you know, um, uh, opening up that discussion uh, with teachers. So in 2009, this diagnosis led the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to offer to help a set of seven school systems reform their approach to teacher evaluation. There were three large districts, Pittsburgh, Hillsborough County in Florida, and Memphis, and four California-based charter school networks that signed on. And the foundation would ultimately invest some $215 million in the initiative, which came to be known as the Intensive Partnerships for Effective Teaching. What exactly did these systems sign on to do? So they signed on to do, you know, a wide range of things. They were going to reinvent their teacher evaluation systems, although in 2009 it was unclear exactly what that was going to involve. We were, remember, the MET project was starting about that time, and we were going to be feeding them back um, uh, what we were learning about uh, different approaches to evaluating um, teachers. And, and by the way, in doing that, we weren't just looking at um, classroom observations and student achievement gains. We're also looking at um, student surveys and assessments of teacher pedagogical uh, knowledge. Uh, so we were looking at a range of things. And the sites were, um, uh, um, were planning to redesign their teacher evaluation systems around lessons learned from that. They were also... Um, uh, um, shifting the way that uh, they were compensating uh, teachers. Um, they were, in some cases, uh, changing the way they were recruiting teachers. There was a, there was a, a series of things. Um, this cascade that you mentioned right. earlier that yes. could be facilitated right. by having the information on performance. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, and to its credit, 
The foundation also asked RAND to evaluate whether this program ultimately improves student achievement as compared to a matched set of comparison school systems. And earlier this year, about nine years after the whole effort started, RAND issued its findings. And the bottom line was that they found no evidence of improved student achievement in these seven systems. This has been widely interpreted in the media and the uh, blogosphere as uh, evidence of failure. My understanding is that you don't dispute the basic findings, but you argue that the conclusion is not quite that simple. Why? Right. Um, what people need to remember uh, is that over this time period, many uh, uh, school districts using federal race to the top uh, funding were doing very similar things to what these intensive partnership sites were doing. In fact, you mentioned the three large school districts. All three of them were in states that won race to the top funding, um, uh, Tennessee, uh, Florida, and... Uh, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, yes. And in California, even though the state uh, didn't receive a race to the top grant, the um, a subset of their large districts received a race to the um, uh, top grant to do similar things. And as a result, um, you know, it's hard to interpret whether or not the changes represented the impact of these policies because both the treatment and the comparison group were, were pursuing similar policies. The, you know, there has been research other elsewhere which did suggest, um, you know, impacts of providing this kind of feedback or using um, these kind of data for high stakes decisions. For instance, uh, DC public schools saw the largest increase um, uh, uh, in NAEP scores that any state um, has seen. Tennessee, which was pursuing similar um, uh, policies and, and continues to in, in many of the districts in Tennessee, they also have seen large increases in NAEP scores. Um, and there have been other studies elsewhere in Chicago, uh, for instance, that suggested that these kinds of um, teacher evaluation reforms do produce increases in achievement. And that gets us into one of the four lessons that you say we should draw when we actually look back and consider this activity as a whole. Uh, the first lesson, as you write, is that better teacher evaluations did lead to improved outcomes, but much of that evidence was found outside the partnership site. So you have the state-level evidence in mind. You have studies that have been done in D.C. and in Chicago and some other systems showing that teachers did make improvements when they were evaluated in, in new ways. Uh, and, you know, as a result, I assume you think that some state policymakers like those you mentioned in Tennessee should try to stick to their guns on the changes that have been made. So um, I agree, actually, that if a state um, were abandoning the teacher evaluation reforms, um, they'll be coming back to this kind of reform uh, later. As, as I said, all, all the evidence uh, suggests that um, teacher evaluation systems are fundamentally broken. And last time I checked, we had not you know, uh, solved that problem. We'd made some progress in some places, but, but the problem is definitely not solved. Um, 
And uh, so, you know, it, it would be my hope that that lots of states will will um, include teacher evaluation reform in their new, uh, you know, reform agendas going forward now that now that, you know, the power is devolved down to the state level. And you draw three other lessons that are directed more towards the Gates Foundation and presumably its peers in the uh, charitable world. Uh, the first of those you, you write is that instead of providing large multi-year grants for district-wide scale-up, the foundation should have invited applications to conduct pilot programs on a smaller scale first. How does that flow from the experience of the intensive partnership sites? So, um, we were talking just a minute ago, Marty, about um, the plans that the districts uh, proposed. And the idea there, uh, which actually I think was remarkably successful, was, you know, to invite uh, districts to um, develop ambitious plans uh, with um, the prospect of grant funding at, at the other end. Um, it was very effective in developing very ambitious plans. I think we've subsequently learned that school districts, like any large organization, struggle to implement large, complex plans, and that um, even though it may be um, a great thing to get folks to really just think very ambitiously about what could be accomplished, um, in implementation, they're bound um, to run into struggles. And I, and I think that's what we found out here. Like to, to quote, um, uh, you know, the social philosopher uh, Mike Tyson, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And, uh, and I think that's what happened here, that, that uh, states and, oh, well, these, these districts had very ambitious plans and, um, and um, just ran into trouble when it came time to implement. I think the same thing, by the way, happened in the race of the top states. And once the Gates Foundation had made its award or the federal government, in the case of Race to the Top, had selected you as a winner, there was very little that they could actually do in terms of holding states or districts to their commitments. Right. Now, you know, in some ways you say, well, okay, some stumbling um, uh, was inevitable. Like, don't, don't you want to galvanize an initial excitement about a reform, even though you know it, that people are going to struggle to implement. Um, now, I think it does make sense for you know um, the federal government or even states uh, to incentivize that kind of ambitious thinking at the uh, local level. I mean, basically. Um, doing so sort of empowers the subset of leaders in all districts that are, you know, looking to make major changes. Um, it empowers them, you know, to, to rally their colleagues to, to, um, to propose ambitious plans. So I'm not saying we, we should never do that. It's that we need to recognize that that is like a, a, a longer term play it's not a 
uh, a short-term thing and that initially everybody's going to struggle. Um, and I, I think actually that's, you know, the story was in the states that were willing um, to hang in there and continue to iterate and improve their uh, teacher evaluation systems uh, like Tennessee or New Mexico or even uh, D.C., um, even though it's not a state. I think uh, um, I think they will see continued. They already have seen improvements in student achievement. I think they will continue to do so if they uh, keep working on it. So let's go to the third lesson. You say that the foundation should have asked districts to solve a more specific, tractable problem. What problem should they have tackled? So um, one problem that was a more manageable uh, problem um, was the uh, evaluation of probationary teachers. As, as I mentioned, uh, school agencies already have in, in, under most collective bargaining agreements, um, and certainly in places that don't have a collective bargaining agreement, um, school districts have leeway during the first one to three years, it, it varies by site, to make high stakes decisions. Um, and uh, so that's a manageable problem because it's a much smaller share of teachers it's a manageable problem because it, it doesn't require a new collective bargaining agreement. Um, uh, and it may be, may have been the smarter thing to do because over time, uh, the teachers that had been through a system like that would have been um, less likely to have a norm of complete autonomy. That, that was one of the issues, I think, with teacher evaluation around around the country was that teachers and principals were used to a system of purely perfunctory uh, classroom evaluations where there was um, no specific uh, feedback. And um, when you've been operating a system like that for decades, um, it's, it's very hard to switch. But if instead this kind of system had been in place for new generations of probationary teachers, they would have gradually, you know, replaced that norm, uh, the closed door classroom norm, with, you know, cohorts of, of teachers that were used to having a more serious evaluation. Finally, um, you know, and, and I think we underappreciated this, um, and in and I'm not sure it may be uh, too late uh, to find it this round, but I always thought that um, there was common ground to be found in uh, higher stakes evaluations of probationary teachers in the sense that common ground for uh, uh, teachers unions and, um, and education reformers because what what high higher stakes um, uh, evaluations of probationary teachers? So you know, ensuring that only the most effective teachers earn tenure makes the thing that a lot of the union leadership really cares about, which is uh, job security, makes that more legitimate, not less legitimate. So. Of course, so, that's one way of seeing it. I think a lot of union leaders might see it as the 
camel's nose under the tent, the way you're sneaking in your high stakes evaluation system to be applied more broadly later on. Yes. So that, that it would have been that fear that, and, and I'm sure that would be the fear now uh, um, in trying to um, open that up. I mean, the only, uh, the alternative is to re- that I think the unions have found themselves in now, which is to resist any form of teacher evaluation, I just think is untenable in the long term, especially given the evidence that we've seen. So, so, so you're right. Um, uh, there would have been the nervousness around, you know, would these high stakes apply later? I mean, one, one way uh, to, to try, maybe that that could have been avoided would have been to um, ha- literally have two separate uh, offices and two, you know, not even call the probationary system teacher evaluation. That, that If we'd called it different things and, and created it, you know, built a firewall between them uh, and had the work that was being done with already tenured teachers focus on you know, feedback, you know, for improvement rather than high stakes, um, maybe that could have, you know, uh, built the trust that the higher stakes would not, um, you know, transition into that system. So lessons two and three point in the direction of the foundation being less ambitious, but your final lesson in some way points in the opposite direction. You write, that the foundation should have extended its research and development strategy beyond simply developing measures of effective teaching to developing and testing solutions for other implementation challenges as well. So what do you have in mind here and how could the foundation have known in advance what implementation challenges would arise? So first of all, we need to recognize that it was um, a new role for philanthropy to be playing. in the measures of effective teaching project, uh, you know, we were doing a research project in collaboration with uh, school agencies and um, developing better tools for teacher evaluation. I don't think anybody had had done that before. So of course we didn't recognize at the time that this was a general uh, tool um, that could be applied elsewhere. But but once you start to think about all of this, um, it's obvious that um, that there were other problems that school districts were going to need solutions to. For instance, um, you know, um, how do you get uh, um, school uh, principals to make high stakes decisions at the time that probationary teachers are are um, having their contract renewed. Um, it's one thing to say there needs to be a higher standard there, but it's, it's another to create a system where, you know, normal principals who are accustomed to uh, promoting pretty much anybody who's, who's willing to stick around for their third or fourth year to make harder decisions. Um, that would have been one area where um, we could have and should have been doing, you know, conducting pilots to try to figure out what kind of incentives would would make a difference there. 
another area um, was that we actually saw within the measures of effective teaching project that um, principals were going to um, rate their own teachers higher than than the same principals would have rated another teacher that they didn't know. Um, so for a subset of the teachers in our sample, we showed them the videos that teachers had, had collected. We had them uh, rate each other's teachers' uh, videos. And we saw that, um, that uh, uh, principals gave um, their own teachers a, what we call the big home field advantage, even though the same principles when viewing teachers from another school could apply um, the standards differently. So with that, like we knew, okay, this, this is going to be a, a problem and just in, in getting principals to use these um, the instruments uh, reliably. And, you know, one could think of ways of trying to you know, solve that problem by using video and having uh, principals score each other's uh, teachers or have um, some, you know, proportion of classroom observations done by external observers, again, using video. So um, that, that was another implementation challenge that we noticed in the process of doing this work. And I think it was a mistake to just sort of leave it to districts to figure out solutions to these things. So I, I think we could have been piloting and testing solutions to those as well. So the MET project needed to be bigger and ongoing in a way that it wasn't, I guess, more with an emphasis on the ongoing. Um, so at the risk of, you know, sounding like a researcher arguing for more <laughs> research, I do think that's that's the case. And by the way, I think that's the way, um, uh, you know, the Gates Foundation functions in other areas like global health. They continue to work on um, improving, uh, you know, treatments for um, Im important diseases, and they 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 pick an, an important problem and continue to work on it over time, rather than see it as a one-time thing. We're going to develop, you know, measures of effective teaching and then be done with our research effort into teaching. No, actually, it's it's about identifying the other um, practical problems that are going to come up in implementing this and then finding solutions for it. So we only have a couple minutes left, but I want to give you a chance to offer some, some broader reflections here. I think some philanthropists might look at the Gates Foundation's effort on teacher evaluation and decide to back away from K-12 education reform altogether. Indeed, some might argue that a lot of foundations are doing just that right now. Uh, but you argue that philanthropy is actually more necessary now than ever. Why? So one of the reasons is that, um, is that the education reform debate has moved back to the state level. And after, um, uh, I guess, 13 years of where the federal government was playing uh, an important role in 
setting the education reform agenda, um, that the effort to have those local debates about ambitious reforms has atrophied and it needs to be built back up. Um, so that's that's one reason is that the, the, the state and local infrastructure for having these debates um, uh, is not what it needs to be. Second, there really is no way that we're going to prepare um, young folks for this new labor market without, you know, finding a way to solve uh, our challenges in K-12 education. Um, there are other tempting places to work, like there, you know, it's tempting to work on uh, preschool education. It's tempting to work on higher education, but, um, but, you know, we're releasing a report today on, on remedial education and higher education, and it all goes back to we've got to figure out how to prepare more of our um, students to succeed in today's labor market. We're clearly falling far short, especially for disadvantaged kids. Um, and, you know, even though it's, it's difficult and frustrating, um, we do need to stay focused on a few key issues and keep working on it until we find solutions. I mean, that's the, the really frustrating thing about the education policy debate is, is it's, um, it's, you know, faddishness. It's, it's, you know, working on one kind of issue for a little while, getting frustrated and walking away and trying to find the next thing. Um, and, while that is sort of inevitable um, in in terms of our politics, I think it's inevitable result of of you know public governance of school systems. Philanthropy should be you know um, identifying the important issues and, and sticking with it. Um, so philanthropy can help promote innovation without faddishness. I, I would hope so. Yeah. And and you argue that they need to be more systematic in how they're uh, they're doing that. And this gets us with what we'll close with the title of your article, the key to being more systematic and promoting innovation, you say, is to develop and validate, then scale. So say just a few words about why that's important. Right. So, um, you know, we can all think of, um, of, philanthropic initiatives that have been scaled up without evidence of efficacy. Um, and what I think would be helpful is if we, you know, identified some clear benchmarks for what is the size of an intervention um, for improving math skills or improving ELA skills or increasing high school graduation rates that would be required in order to discern its impact. Um, in, in the article, I actually tried to, you know, um, I used what we knew about sources of variation and outcomes to say, here, here are the, the sample sizes required for evaluating impacts on math achievement. And I would just argue that, okay, 
we should use those benchmarks to set clear thresholds that, that say, okay, until we have evidence of efficacy, interventions should be smaller than that required for establishing um, uh, efficacy. That, that's what I'd call the development phase. Then, and the, the standard for getting out of the development phase shouldn't be efficacy because by definition, those are too small uh, to, to really reliably identify uh, effective interventions. Rather, the standard should be, are these things that could be replicated in, um, in other um, schools, are these things that uh, seem like the kind of interventions that could be rep spread and replicated. Okay, so you graduate from development to validate by demonstrating that you have a tangible, replicable idea. Yes. A and set then, of instructions that could be followed. And then in the validation phase, um, there we would have a sufficiently large sample of schools or, or um, teachers or you know classrooms implementing uh, the intervention that's been developed. Um, and that's where we test for efficacy. Right. And it wouldn't have to be with a randomized control trial. Obviously, a randomized control trial is the most persuasive design, um, but it's not always feasible. And so we, we should we should use the the research design like matched comparison groups like Rand used, um, but on a smaller scale to be designed specifically to answer the question: Did this intervention that was developed in the first stage, was it effective? And once we've answered that question in the affirmative, that's the time in which we make an investment on the scale of the yes. partnerships and, investment. And when you think about it, like in, um, in clinical trials, uh, the way we connect evidence to scaling is through an agency that we call the Food and Drug Administration, um, where there's sort of a... Um, there's a regulatory process that ensures that effective th ineffective things don't get scaled up. We're never going to have something like the FDA in, in, in U.S. education. There's, but um, I think philanthropy could do a better job of, for instance, regularly convening state legislators to talk about you know what the latest evidence from the latest trials was. Uh, providing training to school district leaders on how to interpret uh, impact studies that are emerging. I mean, one of, the, one of the problems is that every, you know, publisher and every um, organization that delivers uh, any kind of educational intervention claim efficacy, and unless we train leaders on how to recognize what is high quality evidence versus what is not very high quality evidence it's we're just gonna it'll be hard for this the signal to emerge from the noise so um so we need to create new venues for um practitioners to hear about the latest things that are being studied and to to see you know, the evidence of efficacy and, um, and to decide at a local level what they want to scale up and not. My guest today has been Tom Kane, professor of education at Harvard University and the author of Develop and Validate, Then Scale, available now at educationnext.org. Tom, thanks for being part of the podcast. Great. Thanks, Marty. 
You've been listening to the Ednex Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to check out our archive and, especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners find us.